Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. I think some people know the exact moment they become a believer. My story isn't like that. I started going to church when I was seven years old, not because I wanted to, but because my family was falling apart. And I think my parents were looking for something to hold it together. I had a belief in God, but it mainly centered on a fear that he was going to send me to hell when I died. Growing up, I was very angry at the world, often resolving my frustrations by punching holes in my bedroom walls or smashing furniture and violent temper tantrums. Church did little to change me. Even though I prayed the salvation prayer hundreds of times, I never shook the feeling that God would one day send me to hell. It wasn't until I became a teenager and joined the youth group that I was confronted with the truth of the gospel. The church had just hired a new youth pastor, and he was the first person to lay out an intelligent case for Christianity for me. For the first time, I began to believe that Jesus could save me from my sins. My view of God was slowly changing from an angry, disconnected judge to a loving father. For a time, I was passionate about the word of God. I read as much of it as I could, and I devoured any book my youth pastor recommended. I went on mission trips, and I was on a ministry teams. I led worship, and I witnessed to all my secular friends. And then something happened. My youth pastor accepted a job in another state. I was crushed to tell you the truth. I tried my best to keep the fire going when the church hired his replacement, but slowly I sank back into my old ways, going through the motions, playing the part. After all, my whole life was now centered on my Christian friends and the status I'd gained as a leader in the youth group. I look back now and realize that far too much of my faith was placed in a man and not near enough of it was placed in God. So I continued this way, saying all the right Christianly things wearing my NOTW t-shirts, but behind the scenes, everything was falling apart. My dad had become really sick to the point he could barely leave the house. We eventually lost our home to the bank. Our vehicles were repossessed. My parents decided to get a divorce. Half the people in our church encouraged them to do this, while the other half judged them for it. My own life was far from spotless. I had started sleeping with a girlfriend I had met in the youth group, all the while still playing the part of a good Christian guy. At this point, I had resumed my habitual salvation prayers, feeling that at any moment God would fling me into hell. Eventually, I stopped going to church altogether as my life continued to spiral. Feeling far from God, I began searching for a place where I could regain the fire I had once felt. It seemed I visited every church in the West Valley, some of them very similar to the one I had grown up in, some very different. I even visited one where I was sure they would pull a goat out at any moment and sacrifice it. Eventually, I came to a place called Compass Church, and no matter how many other churches I visited, I kept coming back here. My life was still in turmoil and burdened by sin, so I broke it off with the woman I had been sleeping with. Having repented, I began to open myself up to the love of God once again, allowing him to heal my brokenness. I began trusting in him to lead my life according to his purposes and the fear of retribution fell away. The assurance that he is faithful to save those who trust in him became strong in me. I began serving him again, making sure I was doing it for the right reasons. In the years since, he has blessed me with a beautiful wife named Jenna, 
and a strong baby boy named Silas. He's given me amazing friends to lean on when life gets hard, and it is hard, but doing it God's way makes life worth it. I think some people know the exact moment they become a believer. My story isn't like that. I still struggle with anger and lust and doubt, but I know Jesus has saved me. I know he is continually working on me. I know that my salvation is not in my own hands, that there is no amount of sinner's prayers I can pray that can come anywhere close to paying for my sins because they've already been paid for by the blood and resurrection of my Savior, and nothing can undo that. Thank you. Well, I've got nothing to say after that. Let's just go barbecue, call it a night. Man, I mean, that, I mean he nailed it, and it's it. I mean, that, that's it right there. And you see people on the stage, and you think, ah, oh, they're, you know, they probably grew up in church, and they probably never done anything wrong, and they, and they, they, they don't have any, they don't wrestle with God. They're, they're not like me. And yet here he is, playing guitar in the band, and just like the rest of us. I want to welcome you to Compass Church. I'm Tim Jacobs, the lead pastor here one of the members of the preaching team. One of the things that we believe here at Compass is that, that um, even though the Bible was written thousands of years ago, it has the ability to speak powerfully into contemporary issues, into issues that we're dealing with right now. Into The Bible says that it has the ability to get in between the joints and the marrow of, of the bones, like right down into the inner core of who we are. And I think tonight will be no different. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The title of our message today is Harmony Without Getting High. I, I love making up titles like that. And you're going to see why I'm calling it that in a minute. But what we're going to do is we're going to address the problem of division around the world. I mean, let's be honest. Our world is incredibly divided right now. It's divided all over the place, every which way. We have ethnic division. We have class division. We have gender division, political division. We have it at the macro level, at the national level, but it finds it's, it's all of the way down into like the, the basic building blocks of society. Even division between husband and wife. Maybe the person that you're sitting next to right now, if you're honest, there's just a huge wall, a chasm, a divide that you can't seem to bridge. And how do we do that? And so there are things that cause anger and divorce and misunderstanding and then violence and then murder and cynicism and separation between neighbors, people that live close to each other and don't understand each other, don't want to talk to each other. I overheard someone, a, a, a couple the other day, talking. I don't like to listen to other people's conversations, but they were talking kind of loud, and it was interesting. <laughs> and they were talking about political views, which I vehemently disagreed with. And they said, I just wish we could talk to someone about this that wouldn't, um, they wouldn't just be yelling. And I almost wanted to get up and walk over and say, I'm that person. I won't yell at you. Um, but I didn't feel like I wanted to interrupt their conversation. But, but no matter who we are, it's just so much division. 
The culture doesn't know how to fix it. It thinks it does, but it doesn't. The culture is good at diagnosing the problems. It's good at pointing out, I think. The popular culture is good at pointing out that there's problems, but the answers or solutions it gives are ridiculous and they don't work. So when it comes to division, there's kind of two strategies that the culture is given. One is, you know, if we just all kind of uh, come together and we say enough platitudes like we all need to just come together and if we get high enough and hold hands enough and and if we can just somehow pretend that we don't hate each other and do enough chants around some kind of drum circle then maybe we can have harmony and we can just pretend that we don't have all this divisiveness maybe if we do that enough we'll have harmony but it doesn't work. As much as you try to dumb down how you feel and dumb down your passions and dumb down your beliefs and your judgments, it doesn't work. So right on the heels of the kind of kumbaya stuff, right on the heels is then the exact opposite strategy, which is, you know what? Claim who you are and play the victim card and get up and speak your mind and find your voice and tell everyone how angry you are and rise up and become part of the resistance and tell everyone it's my turn to tell you how you have hurt me and hurt people like to hurt people and so now I have a clear shot at the person who's victimized me and so I become a victim now and that's the card that I play. And if I'm a victim, then I have the right to call you every name in the book. I can call you a racist and a sexist and a homophobe and this phobe and that phobe and a germaphobe and whatever kind of phobe I want to call you. And I can do it publicly on display so the whole world can hear and I can shame you and then drop the mic and pat myself on the back and walk away full of self-righteousness because I am a victim and I gave it right back to you. And somehow, if you hear that enough and you feel my anger enough, maybe, just maybe, you'll apologize and we can come back together. And so the crowd that loves to say that they're so tolerant has become so incredibly intolerant of even the slightest thing that they disagree with. And the crowd that says, don't you judge anybody, has become unbelievably judgmental at even the slightest variation of what it is that they so passionately believe. And so the result is I no longer see my neighbor as a human being. I no longer see my neighbor as an individual. Now I see them as part of a group. I put them in a camp and I take who they are and I make assumptions about them and I feel justified in doing so. And so someone who lives right next to me, who I cross paths with every day, because I've grouped them that way, there is now a wall between us. And I have nothing to say to that person. That's where we are in large part. And it happens at the macro level, as I said, and it happens in the micro level, even potentially with those who live in our own home. And so it's into this mess that I believe scripture has something to say to us, has a tool for us, has a foundation for us, has a concept for us, that if we can grab it and take it seriously, just might 
cause us to be people who may be able to take the lead and solve the problem that the culture can't solve because the culture cannot solve it, cannot legislate its way out of it, cannot, uh, in a sense, with vengeance, solve it. It, it. There's no way to solve it except maybe by using several tools that Scripture has to offer and what I'll give to you tonight is just one of them. So we're going to read this passage and we're going to talk about a concept that Paul brings up that I think may help us when it comes to our interactions with other people. So here it goes. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. By the way, he's referring here to pastors. He's referring to earlier pastors. He's talking about pastors. And then in verse two, moreover, it is required of stewards they be found faithful. So we're talking about the church. Remember, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinthians in the city of Corinth. And so he's talking, he's kind of wrapping up his, his talk about how leaders are to be looked at. But now he gets into something else. So it's required of stewards they be found faithful. Verse three, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What have you, that, what have you uh, do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So at the center of this passage of Scripture is the concept of the judgment of God. And the word is used several times, and everything he says in this passage seems to be based on one idea, and that is this, that God is the only one worthy to judge, and his judgment is the only one that counts. That God is the only one worthy to judge the motives and the heart and the intentions of, of, of another, and it's his judgment, ultimately, that counts. Now, oftentimes, the judgment of God is seen as a negative thing. In fact, I love what Tyler shared, how he saw God as this judgmental God. He illustrated my point beautifully. When we talk about the judgment of God, we, we don't like to talk about it because the idea of God being a judge means that somehow he's going to judge unfairly or he's not going to be merciful or he's not anything like that. So we see this angry kind of judgmental God. So we avoid the issue altogether. But the truth is, the concept of God's judgment can be one of the most reassuring and clarifying things about all of life because it carries with it the understanding that everything that's wrong with this world and wrong with life will someday be made right. Now that is a very, very important concept and we don't really think about it very much because I think deep down inside, we think that God, we don't really trust God's judgment. We don't think either he's going to do a bad job judging or he's, he's not going to do it at all. So we don't really trust God. So therefore, we tend to grab that job for ourselves. But the truth is, he is the only one who is fit to judge. 
Now, again, you might go, well, I don't really care about God being a judge, but let me bring it down to a couple of levels. Because when you see what happens in the world, like what happened earlier this week in England, and you say, what? how in the world? This guy goes in, blows himself up at a concert with kids on purpose. And this, the youngest one was eight years old. Eight-year-old little girl blew her up. Where is the justice? We have a God whom you can be sure will make that right. Somehow, some way, more than any human court and more than any human being ever could, God will balance that someday, somehow, some way. But let's even bring it back even more to the personal level. Because we don't like to really think about the judgment of God until it comes down to someone who's maybe hurt us. Think of the person in your life, perhaps, who's stolen from you, who abused you, who hurt you, who took something from you, maybe your pride, maybe your innocence, maybe your property, lied to you. And they're running around out there like nothing happened. The law never caught up with them. Nobody in their life seems to care. They hurt you and they didn't pay. And there's this idea that, God, doesn't anybody care about what happens to me? Doesn't anybody care about what that person did to me? And Paul's very clear, don't you worry. (laughs) Don't you worry. God will judge. And his judgment is always true and always good and always right. And so he watches and he understands. A guy named Leon Morris said it is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil should last throughout eternity. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that God's will will be perfectly done. So we can take rest and solace and find peace in the fact that there is a God who has the ability and wisdom to judge all men, all women, every situation to its complete and total finality. Now at the same time, you and I will also face a judgment for what we have done to others. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I was a holy terror in seventh grade. Those of you who are school teachers, you should be so glad you never had me in your class especially when I was in junior high. I was such a, I, I literally, I made it a point to try to get attention for myself and distract the class from the purposes of the teacher. It wasn't just an accident. I did it on purpose. I used to bring crickets to class. I would catch crickets in my house and I'd put them in a bag, a little lunch bag, and put them in, in my, you know, like a little baggie and put them in my lunch bag so my dad wouldn't see because he'd always drive me to school. And I would get, and I had math in first period. I remember it was math. And so the cricket didn't have to survive very long. And I would open them out of the bag and he'd hop up and he'd hop all over the class and everybody'd go, oh, and then the girls would freak out, you know, because they did that back then, you know, before they became much more resilient. Um, you know, and then the girls were like, oh, there's a cricket, you know, and it, would, it was amazing. And I used to, all the time. And my math teacher, I mean, she hated me. She hated me for this. And I understand why. In fact, I would, I would not be surprised if my math teacher at one point just didn't think, man, I hope that 
Tim Jacobs rots in hell. And you know, the crazy thing is, I would have. I would have. But unfortunately for my math teacher, when I was totally deserving of punishment and retribution for the evil things, because that was just, that's tame compared to the other. I don't have time to get into the other stuff that concerned water balloons and fire and other things that, that were a problem. Um, I don't have time to get into those stories. I told you a tame one. But, but, but un- unfortunately for this woman, God, who is rich in mercy, as the Bible says, saw someone who was completely headed down the wrong road and grabbed me while I was yet undeserving and sent his son Jesus to stand in my place and put that little incident with the cricket on his shoulders. I say that kind of tongue in cheek because um, it wasn't that bad, but it's kind of funny. Um, and, and so that sadly for anyone who might hold anything against me, Jesus paid for it all. He paid for it all. So I, and it's not just, you know, little things with crickets. It's, as, as Tyler so openly shared, lust, pride, greed, deception, anger. Man. And Jesus paid for all that. In fact, and by the way, he was judged for all of that in my place. J.I. Packer, says our sins, listen to this, listen to this. Our sins have been punished. The wheel of retribution has turned. Judgment has been inflicted for our ungodliness. But on Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing in our place. I put that quote up a bunch of times over the years, and I'm gonna keep putting it up because I love that. You see that? You have, oh, judgment's been put on you for what you've done, but it's been put on Jesus instead. You've been, this, your sins have been judged, but the judger, the person that's being judged is Jesus. Isn't that awesome, guys? Come on! That's our faith! Now, I, I bring this up, see, I bring this up because the judgment of God is so right and so thorough and so perfect, I need to leave that whole job up to him. So I wanted to give you a little picture of the reality when he talks about the judgment of God. It is not something that is unrighteous or unfair or un, in a sense, merciful because God clearly shows mercy upon us. We we go against God's judgment because we think somehow it's not right. Like he's a, not a good, good father like we're saying, but an angry, angry father who's out of control. So we don't trust his judgment. And that is wrong. One of the, 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 the concepts, foundations you need to have in your life, in your little wheelhouse, in your little tool bag, when it comes to understanding, now we get into relationships, is you have to take the judgment of God and see that as a real thing that exists and that should inform now how we approach all of life, starting with relationships with people. So therefore, let me give you three things that make this very important in this passage. When I leave the job of judging up to God, there's several things that happen. Number one, I stop being so sensitive when people judge me. When I leave the job of judging up to God, 
I stop being so sensitive when people judge me. Look at what he says. Listen, don't you love this? I mean, this guy is not, he just throws it out there. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. (laughs) What do you think about that? In other words, like, so you're judging me? That's like, that matters like that much to me. That's what he's saying. Could you honest? And he's not saying it in anger, like, you have a right to judge me. He's just going, you judge me. It's it's not a big deal. And why? Because God is the one who judges. Let me ask you an honest question. How much space, how much authority are you giving people in your life to judge you? At some point, it becomes idolatry. At some point, their opinion of you becomes so important that it begins to drive your decisions and drive your attitude and drive your outlook and drive your perspective on life. You, you and I can tend to give people so much authority that they don't deserve and they, don't, they didn't earn and that really, honestly, only belongs to God. So why are you doing it? And we get our, our, uh, our stomachs all tied up in knots thinking about what other people think about us. My mother, she's a very wise woman, and she told me one of the things I'll never forget as long as I live. In fact, I told this to my kids. She said, Tim, no one thinks about you as much as you do. <laughs> Isn't that good? No one thinks about you as a, you're not that important. They're thinking about themselves more than they're thinking about you. If not, they are truly psychopathic, okay? Because that's the way that we are. And we have this idea that there's people out there who are meeting together, taking countless hours out of their busy lives to, to, to be upset at us. And you're really not that important. They probably spend more time thinking about themselves. It's, it's, I would, you know? But even if they are, who who are, they don't know you. They don't know your life. They don't know, they don't know what's going on in here. They don't know what God's called you to. They don't know your background. I mean, chances are you have Tyler over here standing up playing guitar. You could have made a thousand judgments about his upbringing and he's in here in this evangelical church and he probably is like this or like that. He comes up and shares with you his life story. You had no idea what was going on in his life and no idea what the work that God was doing in his life. So Paul says, in fact, I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything. Again, he's like, I don't think I've done anything. Like, I, I, there's nothing in my heart right now that I can see is terribly wrong, per se. But I'm not, not, it doesn't mean I'm off the hook. I'm not the one who judges me. He is the one who judges me. It's the Lord who judges me. So don't give people that kind of authority. And at the same time, don't use this as an excuse to say, yeah, that's right, Pastor Simpson, I don't need to listen to you. No, there are people whom God has put in our lives to speak truth into our lives. And those people are very important, and we have to let them do that. So don't, don't take it too far here. But remember, if people call you out on principle issues, on sin issues, that's one thing. There are people that God has put into your life. But, but so don't use this as a way of ignoring godly counsel from people who honestly love you. But usually it comes when, when people are throwing stuff at you about bringing up your past, bringing up something that you can't really change or do anything about. It's not a sin issue. It's not a principle issue. It's a preference issue. And they wouldn't do it that way, and so they want you to do it like them. And you know, this is not, it's not, that's not, you're, you're living your life. 
By the way, there's a beautiful and amazing verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 21, that can really speak into our, our highly triggered, oversensitive culture that freaks out over every little thing and piles on, on online and everything else. Look at what it says. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that good? Now, you know, we don't have servants today, but if you, you know, I, it, it, in the, that context, it made sense. But, but it, to, in other words, don't, don't listen to every little thing someone's saying about you. And it's, you know, there's a great, Charles Spurgeon talks about having the blind eye and the deaf ear. It's good to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. So you're not, you're not listening to every little thing and look at every little thing. Because you, you yourself know that you've, in, in off moments, you've said stuff about people that you didn't really mean. You just said it. So just relax a little bit. They're not judging you anyway. And so it reduces, it reduces the role of God's authority in our life when we give people that kind of authority. So, so don't do it. The second thing that happens when I leave the job of judging up to God, the job of judging, judging up to God, number two, I stop nitpicking what everyone else does. Again, look at what he says in verse five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. See, you don't know what's going on. You think you do, but you don't, right? And he discloses the purpose of the heart. There will come that day when God will disclose the intent and the purpose and all will be revealed. But don't do, don't do that now. It's not your job. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So he will bring to light these things because you can't do it. Now, let me clarify. This doesn't mean that you ignore. Uh, now, on the flip side, it doesn't mean that you're ignoring speaking into other people's lives. When you love them and you have a relationship with them and they're in blatant sin, it's ruining them and damaging the testimony of Jesus, you, you have the right to come along and say, listen, I love you. I'm concerned about this. That's, that's a different thing than you always saying, you know, I don't like the way they do this. I don't like the way they do that. And you should never have done that. And there's this critical heart that we can tend to have, sometimes out of Christian love for people, quote unquote. And I think what Paul's really getting at here is we have to acknowledge that there's this amazing differentness, to use that word, or otherness about people. That, that other people, they're, it's really, they're really much different than we sometimes think that they are. We assume that they're a lot like us. And they are, and that they're human beings, but their experience, their worldview, their values the eyes in which they live, they see things can be so very, very different and yet they can still be people who love Jesus and mean well and are following the will of God. Just not the way you think that they should. And I think this really shows up a lot of times in marriages. And I've said this before, but I, my wife and I were talking about it the other day and it bears repeating because I just think it's important that, you know, for me, probably like the first 10 years of our marriage, you know, I, I came from a, um, a really great family overall. I mean, we had, we had um, I thought that, you know, we had our issues here and there, but my parents are awesome people. I loved, I really valued the way they resolved conflict, the way they communicated. Um, the family system that I came from was very, was, was healthy. It was just really good. I was a recipient of that. And so um, when I got married, the assumption that I had was that the way that we do things as a family is the way that you're supposed to do things as a family. And yet here comes my wife who just came from a totally different family system. 
And it wasn't necessarily bad, you know, but it just was different. And so when, when it came to conflict or communication or other things, when she would, she would do things sometimes that I was like, well, that's weird, you know? And, and in my mind, I would think, okay, well, you know, she's, she's getting there, you know? Um, someday she'll, she's coming around. I'll have, I'll have patience with her. And at some point, you know, we go through these things, she'll see the way, the right way to do things and, and we'll be all right. This is how I thought. You know, basically what I, what I you know, if I could be honest, what I'm saying is at, at some point as we grow together, she'll just become more like me. <laughs> right? <laughs> Isn't that what it is? She'll just become more like me and then she'll be better. And, and I never realized that I thought that. I just thought it. And then one day I looked at her and it hit me. I told you God likes to whack me in the head, you know? And it just like, bam, I went, whoa, she's just a totally different human being than I am. And her way of seeing things is it's just different than my way of seeing. And it's not wrong. It's not bad. And maybe what you do is shut up and stop and just look at her and take her for who she is in these regards and learn to bend myself a little bit to how she sees things. And it's not going to be bad. So you have to think about this. And there may be marriages in here where you're so sure that you're right and you're so sure that your way of doing things is right that you are totally blind to the journey of the, that God has put you on in marriage is actually a journey where he sticks you in the same bed with another person for the rest of your life who fundamentally sees the world differently from you. Isn't that crazy? He did that on purpose. Why do you think he would do that? Do you ever go, why would God do that? Why would God ordain that I spend every night of my ever-loving life from now until I die with someone who's radically different than I am in terms of their gender, in terms of their outlook and their makeup and their personality and their experiences? Why would he do that? So that maybe we would learn humility. And maybe that we'd see the world as much, much bigger than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> Love to hear that story. Um, <laughs> mm. So now we've got all this racism stuff that's popping up and everyone's walking on eggshells around each other. At least that's what it seems like. We're actually going backwards, getting away from the principle of, you know, uh, Martin Luther King who talked about character over color. Remember that speech a long time ago? It's kind of a beautiful speech. And now we're going into this whole thing is all we do is see color. College campuses are all about color. They've all gone backwards. Everything is, you know, we're, there's even college campuses that are going back to racially segregated dorms. And uh, it's ridiculous. It's a dangerous, dangerous road. And we're casting judgment on each other and looking at skin color and assuming motives and the root of all that is pride. The root of that is I can look at you and at your skin color and I can assume your values. I can assume your outlook. I can assume your level of hatred. I can assume your background. I can assume what you're probably going to do or how you're probably going to think. And it's almost like it's, it's okay to do that now. It's okay to look at people and go, well, you know, you're this way, so I'll just make these assumptions about you. And meanwhile, the person of a different color is my neighbor. Where does that factor in? The person of a different color is my neighbor. 
You know, we had Andre speak here last week. And Andre is my friend. He's my brother. And Andre and I, like, we should be friends because we have common interests and values. And yet, there are forces out there that want to tell us because there's fights happening thousands of miles away in Washington, D.C. or in some stupid campus, college campus somewhere, that somehow we're more attached to those people fighting than we are to each other. A guy named Jonathan Sachs, who's a Jewish rabbi, lives in London, an amazingly brilliant mind, wrote a book called The Home We Build Together. And he says one of the challenges with globalism and the ability to be connected all over the world is that we identify with people who are thousands of miles away from us and it separates us from the people who are right next to us. Because we can get information so quickly now, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just causing another set of problems. And so he wrote this book back in 2007 and he says this, conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, Kashmir, and Israel are no longer far away. They are, as they say, coming to a cinema near you. They can wreck friendships in Luton or Leicester cause violence in the street of Manchester or Birmingham and poison relationships in one university campus after another. Well, that was prophetic. Written 10 years ago. Violence in the streets of Manchester. Because you're my neighbor, but you're not in my group. So I make assumptions about you. And I want to be able to see my brother who looks different than me. And I want to see him as a guy who's not someone I'm supposed to be in conflict with because there's conflicts happening somewhere else between different people. And as he says in the book, he says, we should be exporting a message of unity around the world, not importing messages of conflict. And that's what we're doing right now. We're importing messages of conflict into our local communities that are happening far away. Are you with me? We're importing messages of conflict that put up walls between people that are, should be neighbors because we're judging them and we're nitpicking them. And we're saying, if you don't believe this and this and this and this and this and this, we can't hang together because that means you're part of those guys over there and those guys over there are evil. Social media amplifies this problem even more. Let me give you an example. This might have happened to you as well. There's an individual at my gym who I recently became Facebook friends with. I won't even give you their gender because I don't want to give it away um, at all. I mean, it's nobody that you know, but just in case they happen to walk in or watch you on live stream. And there's a person I became friends with recently on Facebook. And this person is someone who I talk to, you know, three, four days a week. And um, nice person, you know. And we'd suffer together in the gym and everything else. And when I got on their profile, I started realizing, like, man, this person has radically different views than I do on things. And I'm like, what an idiot. <laughs> you know, this is my thought. And I'm scrolling down. I'm going, really? Is this the same person that I, I work out with? This person, like, are you serious? What, what, what kind of moron puts this stuff on? This is what I'm thinking. And now all of a sudden I go, man, I don't really want to hang out with this person. Why? See, what happens is there's a whole other dimension that I bet if we sat down and talked, we may have a different conversation, but the platform of social media puts this thing up between people. So you see this is happening. But all of this is going to have to come down to a place of humility where I say, you know what? Stop. We have to understand the forces working against us trying to divide us are stronger and more clever and more deceptive and subtle than they've ever been. And the key is I have a neighbor 
who is in proximity, physical proximity with me. And if we were completely cut off from everything else in the outside world, maybe our relationship would even get better because we would not have all of this crazy stuff to label ourselves with and we could just be friends. So this leads me to my third point. When I let God be the judge, I stop proudly assuming my preferences are right. Look what he says in verse six. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? In other words, y'all the same. Y'all Christians. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he's saying, don't go beyond the constraints of what Scripture says. How another Christian raises their kids? Is there a verse in the Bible that says what type of school they should be raised in? Is there a verse in the Bible that says that? There's principles. But there isn't a verse that says you should raise your child in this kind of school. How another Christian spends their money. Is there a verse in the Bible that tells you exactly how to budget your money and what exactly percentage should go to this and go to that and go to everything else based on your income? Is there a verse that specifically says that? No. Are there financial management principles? Sure. Idea of generosity and everything else. But how do their Christians spend their money? You don't know their background. You don't know their income. You don't know the, you might hear bits and pieces of things and pay, make your own little construct. But that's your preference. That's your preference. How about the politics of another Christian? Right after the election, there was a guy who came up to me in our church. And he was like, why does a sheet? He said, Tim, he said, I read somewhere that three quarters of the evangelical world voted for Donald Trump. He said, that means three quarters of the people in this church voted for Donald Trump. He said, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know? He's like, I, I didn't do, I, I can't, I can't, what am I supposed, this is crazy. Hey, is this the kind of church I go to? He said, what do I do? I said, let's talk. So we went out and we had coffee together. We spent two hours just talking about why he voted the way he did and why I voted the way that I did. And you know, this guy's my brother in Christ. And every time I see him, we smile, we laugh. We, have, we say, we gotta do that again. And we're, we, I, he didn't change my mind. I didn't really change his mind very much. But I understood him. Not through the grid. Not through the grid of, of CNN and Fox News and all these dumb websites. I saw him through the grid of Jesus and a human being who has value and who I should shut my mouth and listen to first. And then let him listen to me. <laughs> so this is hard for us type A analytical types who have wonderful plans and expectations for everyone else's life. And I do. And some of you do too. Believe me, I, man, I could tell you, you sit down with me, I could tell you exactly what you should do with your life. I've done it so many times. Well, here's what I think since you asked, right? And so... Um, it's true. I just the way that I am. I'm like, I, you know, I see vision for people like, yeah, you should do this. And if you don't, you're stupid. Um, but here's the thing. Can I just challenge you with this? Before you're dead, before you die, can you try to collect the most interesting people that you possibly can in your life? Think about that. Just try to collect a variety of people. Then you can just go, man, this guy's crazy, but he's my friend. Man, she's nuts, but don't ever, ever criticize her in front of me because I love her. I wouldn't do it that way, no, but she loves Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shut off our brains, guys. I'm not saying that at all. Believe me. I'm the first one to go, Ugh! but man, we got to, someone's got to step up. We got to change this. Let's get, we're getting, we're getting some dangerous ground here, guys. 
you know. I mean, I'm a big one on, you know, I'm, I'd love the opportunity to serve, and do my very small part in the, in the military, and, and so to assess threats from outside, but I tell you what, what's going on inside is just as dangerous, if not more, to our culture, to neighbors, to families. Guys, we have to stop this. And the way we do it is by saying, you know what? I'm going to let God, I'm going to let God be the judge. I'm going to love people. I will speak into the people's lives in whom I think there's blatant sin and I will love people that way and I'll, I'll try to come alongside and do the best I can. But I'm going to let the one who judges justly be the one who judges. And I'm just going to camp on that. And I'm going to do my very best to collect a whole lot of really interesting people in my life. go, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not that I never thought of that. Cool. And love the variety of the images of God that He has made. And be humbled by the diversity of His image spread worldwide. Do you have the guts to do that? Do you have the the love to do that? Do you have the reverence for the Creator God Himself? who in this context, speaking specifically to Christians, gave his precious blood for the people you are slandering. I gotta be honest, as I was writing this, I was like, man, I feel such like a hypocrite for saying this stuff because I deal with this in my own life. And yet, you know what, I'm not because when I learn this stuff, that God, God has to preach to me before it comes out to you. So, so this isn't a sermon that I'm preaching. It's a sermon that God's preaching and we're all listening. I'm just kind of like the amplifier for it because I have to learn it as much as you guys do. But you have to understand this. There is a judgment that's coming. Please know that. And those of you who sit in judgment on others, the Bible says that the measure that you use on them will be used against you. So I say, I really believe that. I don't think God's going to, if you're not a believer, I don't think God's going to judge you necessarily. He doesn't need to judge you on his law. He'll just judge you on yours. And he'll, the result will be the same. You'll be, he'll be like, man, you, you really got after that person for that and that and that, but let's just roll the tape or the um, MP3. Let's stream it on Hulu, your life. Ooh, that looks bad. Ooh, that was, and, and you're going to violate your own standard a thousand times over before you even begin to violate his. Here's the point, guys. I will tell you this. You don't want to face judgment apart from Jesus Christ. You, you, I, I'm just saying it to you as a friend. I'm saying it to you as a fellow human being. That it's, I'm just saying you don't want to face the judgment of God apart from the mercy of Jesus Christ. So don't do it. This is your opportunity to say, you know what? I realize I've judged people. That's a sin. I will be held accountable for that. And I am rightly to be judged by God but I'd rather have that judgment be placed on a savior who loves me so that I can walk free because I have a good, good father. And so I urge you today to do what I did and many of the people here, if you haven't yet, and let Jesus be the one who pays for your sin. Okay? And then more than anything else, I want to challenge you. So with that, and then those of you who are already believers, man, will you, will you, will you, will you release the need to let other people know all that's, you know, to have this idea in your head of all these things that they've got to do. Can you just let the people in your life be who they are? Speak into it when you need to. On principle, but let their preferences be their preferences. And take the journey of loving them the way your Savior's loved you.
Let's pray together. Father, as we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, who would think that, uh, that, the, that the idea of your judgment would be something that would actually improve our relationships and improve our ability to love and understand and receive each other? It's crazy. But that's the teaching that's given here is that we are not to do that. And so God, I would ask that we would just, we would be a church that would have this beautiful diversity of people of all types that just would receive each other. And yeah, speak into each other's lives out of love and correct one another when appropriate, but not the way that the world does. And quite frankly, not the way a lot of Christians do. Can we take the lead in our, in our small community here and just begin to be people who in this town would just see that they, we love each other and that we love others too and that we see that your ways are not our ways. At the same time, for those in here who need to let you be the one who pays for their sin, I pray that they would do that, that they would not shirk this, that they would not go, yeah, I'll deal with it later. God, there's just been too many examples of late that that's just a bad idea. That everybody in this room would have assurance that the wheel of judgment has turned, but it has been turned on the Savior and not on us. So right where they are, if anyone's in here, they would just say, God, today I want you to be the one who forgives my sins. I want you to be the one who bears my sins. You be my king and my judge. And you be my redeemer. Today I want to start following you. And help me learn to love people the way you love people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.